This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hair loss is quite common, and although it occurs more commonly in men, it can also occur in women. It's estimated that up to 80% of men and nearly 50% of women experience hair loss sometime during their life. And while it's not a life or death health issue, it can have a negative effect on confidence and self-esteem, and a significant amount of money is spent on hair regrowth products and restoration procedures. Did you know that about 95% of our total skin area is covered in hair? And you can lose up to 50% of your hair before it's all that noticeable to others. How does hair loss differ in males and females? Why do some men go bald? And how effective are the pharmacologic treatments that are available in producing hair regrowth? We'll discuss these questions and more with our guest, Dr. Jason Sluvavich, a dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. The topic for today's podcast is handling our patients with hair loss. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Jason, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. This is going to be fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, patients, I think, a very interesting topic. So I'm delighted to discuss that with you today. Yeah. Um, one of the fun things about this job for me is I get to ask questions that I've always wanted to know the answers to, but never really had an opportunity to ask. So I'm going to ask some fun questions about hair. So before we talk about hair loss, let's talk about hair growth. What are the phases of hair growth? Well, I think it's important to understand the hair cycle because a lot of the pathogenic conditions related to alopecia do relate to that. So most hair will grow for about two to six years. And when the hair is in the actively growing phase, we call it an antigen hair. The hair itself is sort of biochemically inert, but the metabolically active part is with the hair bulb. And so it's really changes in the hair bulb related to this growth cycle that can produce some of these forms of alopecia. What's the typical lifespan of an individual hair? So it can last anywhere from two to six years, and you generally will lose about 100 hairs a day. Under the microscope, these have a very specific configuration. They look morphologically different, and we call these telogen hairs. And so unlike other mammals where the hair shedding is somewhat in the cyclic form, in humans, it's very random. But in general, 80% of the hairs are in the growing phase and 20% are in this resting so-called telogen phase. And we see people with different color hair. How is that determined? So basically, like your skin pigment, pigment is transferred from the hair bulb into the hair follicle. And so it, it's really the relative amount of eumelanin that determines um, the grades of hair color that we see. As you get a little bit older, that transfer becomes less efficient. And then that's why you start getting the so-called gray hairs. I have noticed that I have fewer black hairs and more gray hairs every time I uh, get a haircut. Why do some men become bald? So basically, in addition to whether a hair is actively growing or resting, the size of the hair can actually change with time. And so basically for most men who have androgenic alopecia, the actual hairs that they have, the number physically doesn't change, but the actual diameter of the hair actually begins to shrink. And so this process is called miniaturization, and this is largely hormonally driven. 
And it seems like those I know who have lost hair also had a father who lost hair. So is this uh, highly genetic? Right. So there's definitely a genetic component in terms of which hairs will have this um, baseline sensitivity to androgens and the derivative androgens. And a lot of this will be determined by the location. So the interesting thing about hair is, so for instance, a guy, when he goes through puberty, he has these fine villous hairs on his face and the effect of the androgens in that area is actually to convert those hairs into thicker terminal hairs and you grow a beard. But with respect to the scalp and genetically predisposed individuals, it actually has the opposite effect. The thick, large terminal hairs become progressively miniaturized or villicized, and that's what produces the alopecia. But the location in the scalp is also important. So you see sort of in the posterior aspects of the scalp, even in patients with really severe androgenic alopecia, oftentimes those hairs are never affected. And so this androgen sensitivity is sort of programmed into the hair bulb, not just based on the genetic uh, susceptibility, but also the physical location of where that hair bulb develops embryologically will uh, show the effect of the androgen over time. Well, most of our organs, if not all, show changes associated with growing older. And is hair loss a normal function of aging? So basically what we tend to see is that the hair cycle tends to be just shortened. So in general, young person, a hair will grow about six inches per year. But as you get older, the length of this growing uh, so-called antigen phase will shorten. And so that's the major change in combination with some of the grain that we see. And so those two factors essentially reduce the relative density of the hair on the scalp, and that contributes to what we would consider normal physiologic alopecia associated with aging. And is there any difference in that in males versus females? So a lot of times the major difference is that these um, issues with shortening of the hair cycle when then combined with whether you have a tendency to androgenic alopecia can produce different sort of clinical results. So for men, the major component tends to be androgenic because with men, when they develop androgenic alopecia, they'll have regression of their frontal hairline and then balding at the crown, where females, even if they have some genetic predisposition to that, their frontal hairline is generally preserved, but we just see widening of the hair part. But frequently there'll be mixed patterns. So as you get older, you have a more shorter growth phase and you have this base like androgenic alopecia with this sort of shortening telogen hairs. And so that's what really produces the, the clinical picture that we see most frequently clinically. So we call this a mixed non-scarring alopecia. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about androgenic alopecia because I understand that's the most common type of hair loss. So what triggers this in men? And why doesn't it occur in all men? I mean, we all have uh, androgens floating around. So why in some versus not in others? So that, as we've mentioned earlier, is largely genetic. So there are some men that as they age there, the androgens don't really induce this miniaturization effect. So that is largely an inherited 
quality that people carry. We always see the effects are more severe in men than in women, just because men have a higher baseline androgen load. And then women also have relatively higher amounts of estrogen and estrogen tends to be protective for the hair follicle and promote hair growth. And so basically the triggering factor is just chronic time with exposure. So you get older, um, you have uh, in women, there'll be with aging a more relative androgen excess as their estrogens levels decline. And then in men, if you have the genetic susceptibility, the extent of which varies, that induces this uh, miniaturization event. Talk a little bit about the treatment options, because there are a few available for androgenic alopecia. And I think as in many pharmacologic products, we're actually, I think, using these products for their adverse effects because they were antihypertensive medications. Right. They found, hey, they produce hair growth. So now right. they're marketed for hair regrowth products. Talk a little bit about those. So basically, um, as you mentioned, we have minoxidil and essentially finasteride and sort of related compounds. Minoxidil is, was originally developed for hypertension. For a long time, it was marketed as a topical, both in a 2% and a 5% strength. But it, the 5% is what is typically used now. There's a lot of intolerances, though, to minoxidil as a vehicle. And so there has been a movement actually to switch minoxidil and administrate it orally. So we will now think about using to promote really the hair growth cycle. So this will take the growing antigen hairs and keep them growing longer. Women will start at 1.25 milligrams a day and men at 2.5 milligrams a day. And that's very effective. I mean, it works quite well. And most patients will see a significant increase in the volume of their hair within 12 weeks. It's a temporary effect. If you stop, you lose that stimulus and that hair will be um, shed. And then with respect to some of the androgenic component, finasteride in men, it essentially freezes them where they are. So basically you'll have some amount of hair loss. And when you start the drug, it pretty much keeps you where you are. Um, it doesn't work as well as in women. And it's partly because probably the androgenic load in women is not as high of a magnitude in men. So for women, we tend to do more of the minoxidil. And in men, if we want to be aggressive, we'll do the finasteride and the minoxidil in combination. Many patients are feel very good with minoxidil. And at that dose, we don't see a lot of side effects. Finasteride can have some issues with sexual dysfunction, and some patients have very strange reactions to it, even after stopping. So you want to have like an honest conversation if you're going to use that um, long-term in the management of androgenic alopecia. And we use finasteride for symptomatic BPH. Yes. Are, are the doses pretty similar? So if we're treating a patient with BPH, might that cause some changes in their hair? Yeah, so certainly for a BPH dose, it would be therapeutic. Usually we use around one milligram for androgenic alopecia. So I think it's less than this conventional doses for mm -hmm. BPH. And then the other issue with this is, um, you know, screening patients for prostate cancer. If you're on right. an asteroid, it's going to artificially lower your values. And so it's important to realize that even small changes in a PSA level on someone with that could be clinically significant. So what you would keyed up in terms of screening threshold will certainly change in the setting of using those types of medications. Yeah. When we do use it for BPH, we generally double the value of the PSA, and that would be kind of equivalent to where they mm -hmm. were without the medication. All right. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about alopecia areata, one of the more abnormal causes of hair loss. So this is probably the most common autoimmune hair loss condition. So in this condition, there's a lymphocytic mediated attack on the hair bulb. And so basically under the microscope, we call it the swarm of bees. We'll see these lymphocytes swarming around the hair bulb. And the effect of that is it takes the growing antigen hair and converts it into a telogen hair, which is then immediately shed. And so typically it presents with very circular discrete areas of hair loss. We see this very commonly in children, and we can also see it in adults. And, and usually it's localized. And when it's limited, we can usually manage that with either topical steroids or interlesional injections of steroids. And many patients will end up going into a remission. So they'll sort of self-correct the autoimmune trigger. But there is a proportion of patients who progress and it's no longer just in localized areas. It can have more of a diffuse presentation and then it can even progress to start involving outside of the scalp where you start losing eyebrows, eyelashes, and um, body hair. And so we're not sure exactly what the autoimmune trigger for this is, but what new studies have shown is that patients with darker hair types or those with more eumelanin do have sort of an overproportion of this condition. So there may be some antigenic targets related to hair pigment, which have uh, been recently suggested. You mentioned an autoimmune phenomena. So do these patients tend to have other autoimmune disorders? Uh, are they a part of other immune autoimmune disorders or is, can you just get the alopecia areata? So oftentimes there can be co-segregation with autoimmune thyroid disease is probably the most common one. So we certainly generally do screen patients for autoimmune thyroid disease and thyroid disease in itself can sometimes cause uh, the telogen effluvium. It can be a cause of hair loss in itself, but yes, they do tend to um, co-segregate in, in some patients. And can you see this in both men and women? Yeah, this is pretty much equal. So uh, men and women, and most patients will have sort of a, 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 it will be a one and done, they'll get it and then they'll remit. But if you start having chronic relapsing courses where it appears and then it's treated and then it comes back, you're at more at risk of having more permanent and extensive hair loss with this condition. And are the findings pretty classic for this, or do you need a biopsy to confirm? So certainly when it's patterned and you see these discrete alopecic circles, it's quite distinctive. In children, sometimes trichotillomania can mimic some features of alopecia areata. So um, that can sometimes be a, a, a source of diagnostic confusion. And then in adults, there is a diffuse pattern, which may be reminiscent of certain forms of either chronic telogen effluvium or advanced androgenic alopecia. So in those situations, um, a biopsy is used and biopsies are very diagnostic. I and mean, then generally the features um, even in both um, early and late stage disease are, are, are quite characteristic. And does this kind of remit on its own at times? And if so, does the hair ever grow back? And so this is the really interesting thing. And when you take the sample, the hairs are still all there. They're just all been converted into this resting state. So this isn't an issue where the hair has no capacity to regrow. It's, it's simply the autoimmune attack makes them sort of senescent. So with effective treatment in localized disease, typically with like high potency corticosteroids, we can get the hair cycle to essentially reboot and then the hair will effectively regrow. 
So you mentioned steroids as a treatment. Is this uh, oral or intradermal? Or so typically, you... um, these will be topical and then interlesional. And so basically, these patients are divided into, you know, that's a practical method. Or if it's extensive, let's say you've lost 50% of your hair. Before, we were really stuck because traditional immunosuppressives, things like uh, mycophenolate mofetil or methotrexate, the response rates were very, very low. But recently, the JAK kinase inhibitor class has been recently FDA approved for the treatment of severe alopecia areata. And so this is bartisanab, which is a selective JAK kinase inhibitor. These patients in this study had more than 50% hair loss. So they were quite a significantly effective group. And about by week 24, almost a third got 80% of their hair back. So certainly a clinical, meaningful response. And so this has been a real revolution in the treatment of this because many of these patients were for many times really stuck and had very limited options with very unsatisfying treatment. So they'll be interesting to see as these patients are followed longitudinal, how those response rates can be increased. It does appear, however, this is not remittive. It's mainly suppressive because there have been patients who have done very well and have stopped drug and have quickly relapsed. So we don't right now have a remittive treatment, but at the doses that are given, generally it is um, well-tolerated and the side effects compared to sort of first-generation JAK kinase inhibitors are much more manageable. And is the effectiveness of treatment depend on how early you start that? Is it more effective if you catch these patients early? It is true. And that's true of any basically hair disorder, because as this hair cycle gets progressively shortened and the, the issues of the miniaturization take effect, sometimes we'll see the follicles, they're still there, but they're just so tiny that even if they get reactivated, there's not as much as you're able to do with them. So certainly early intervention for hair disorders is always the best. And you mentioned recurrences. So this can come back. This can come back. So there is certainly a group of patients who we treat them and then they go into a remission and they stay forever. And then they, there may be unpredictable sort of relapses. So for localized disease, we're still sticking with topicals. We don't need to commit patients to um, oral therapy, but for certainly generalized disease, rapidly progressive disease, um, oral therapy certainly is the way to go. And this class of medicines will likely have impact on other hair disorders as well. So it was discovered basically uh, serendipity. There was a patient with rheumatoid arthritis that had severe alopecia areata and was treated with a JAK kinase inhibitor and their hair grew back. And so this was sort of an accidental discovery, but it has been replicated in, in randomized trials. Let's tackle one more issue. What's scarring alopecia? What are the so, common symptoms in the typical course? So this is like, we don't have a lot of emergencies in dermatology, but scarring alopecia is what we consider an emergency because this is typically some inflammatory process in the scalp. And in contradistinction to some of the non-scarring conditions we've discussed, the inflammatory process actually destroys the hair follicle. So like in alopecia areata, the inflammation just sort of stuns the hair and makes it go quiet. But in a scarring alopecia, the inflammation destroys the hair bulb and it's essentially replaced with a scar. So once that hair is lost, it can never be recovered. These are basically mediated either by neutrophilic inflammation or by lymphocytic inflammation. And so I think in terms of if you're trying to recognize a patient that has a potential scarring alopecia, if you see someone who is 
having hair loss and you're seeing their scalp appears boggy or you're seeing a lot of just sort of folliculitis or pustules, that's someone you probably want to refer to a dermatologist. Or if you see someone that it looks like they really just have bad, uh, you know, seborrhea, their scalp is red, it's kind of itchy, it's flaky, it's not responding to, you know, head and shoulders, not responding to topicals. That's another clue that they may have really a lymphocytic mediated scarring alopecia, and then they should be um, referred. And we use biopsies to characterize them. These are somewhat esoteric, you know, conditions. They're, they're not particularly common, but early intervention can make a difference in patients. And so we want to see these patients early because the worst thing as a dermatologist is to see these patients late and they've lost, you know, 50% of their scalp hair because they presented so late in the disease course. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do at that time to preserve the hair that has been lost. Do you see this in both men and women as well? This is both in men and women. There are some racial differences. So in African-American patients, we tend to see more of this neutrophilic mediated disorders. In Caucasian patients, there's a group of disorders with um, what we call lichen planopilaris. It's like a lichen planus-like condition of the scalp that produces alopecia. So there can be some racial and demographic differences. But from a gender standpoint, they're relatively equal. You mentioned treatment and you said getting the patient early is important. Is treatment pretty effective then if you can uh, see them early? So these are difficult problems. So like alopecia areata before the Jack Kinase sort of resolution, a lot of the treatment responses are low. So it often takes a combination of oral steroids with some form of immunosuppressive a lot of these disorders will be are undergoing studies with the Jack kinase class because the lymphocytic inflammation that mediates some of the scarring alopecias has some analogy to what is seen in alopecia areata. So it's thought that there could be a therapeutic benefit in that. But with the neutrophilic disorders, we have a, a, a wide ways to go. We don't have, unfortunately, particularly good long-term remittive treatment. So this becomes a chronic management problem. Was there anything new in the field of hair loss? Anything that you see coming in the future that's exciting? So there is a lot of trying to grow them like in culture and being able to potentially transplant them. So for the cosmesis, for improving androgenic alopecia. And then the newer things are with the genomics of hair. Like we don't really understand the hair cycle particularly well, but there are new sequencing techniques called uh, single cell sequencing, where we can basically look at gene profiles of even within the hair bulb, the different parts of the inner root sheet, the outer root sheet, how that relates to the keratinocyte. And so hopefully with these um, molecular techniques, we're gonna have more insights into the pathogenesis of these conditions and have newer therapeutic targets to help patients. Jason, you've given us lots of information about hair loss. Can you give us maybe two or three key points that summarize our discussion? Sure. I would probably say, you know, try to recognize scarring alopecia. So if something seems inflammatory in the scalp and it doesn't seem right to you, early referral to a dermatologist is always sort of important because we can at least try to arrest in the beginning and have a better outcome for these patients. Generally for androgenic alopecia, you don't need complex lab evaluations. So we, we did talk about how there's this relative hormonal excess, but you don't necessarily have to test blood hormones because generally they're all normal. It's an exaggerated response to physiologically 
normal levels of hormones. And unless there's some signs of virilization, like in a woman, this is not likely going to have some strange endocrine problem. And so you can manage it using like minoxidil and finasteride. And the other thing is look at people's eyebrows. So another clue for scarring alopecia is eyebrow loss. So if you start seeing sort of thinning of the eyebrows, that may suggest that someone has a scarring alopecia because many of them have that as an early sign. And so that's kind of a helpful clue. It's not entirely specific and there's many different things that can cause alopecia of the eyebrows, but that is especially the lateral edge. That's a little pearl, especially if you're debating, is this potentially serious? You see the thin eyebrows, I can guarantee you that you're probably onto something. We've been discussing handling your patient with hair loss with Dr. Jason Suzbavich, a dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic. Jason, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. It's always fun talking to you. Absolutely. It's my sincere pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. <laughs>